welcome to the Community Mennonite Church Podcast. This week's sermon is brought to us by Pastor Dana Olson-Getty. with me. Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Betrayal is never beautiful, and this one was particularly ugly. A teenage boy, an irritating, arrogant, spoiled teenage boy, was sent off on an errand by his dad. And his older stepbrothers, who were sick to death of listening to his self-aggrandizing visions and imaginings of his own future, and also of watching their elderly father indulge and pamper this younger brother, these older stepbrothers decided to exact their revenge. And so while he's out away from home on this errand, The stepbrothers grab him, they strip his clothes off of him, and they throw him in a pit. They are planning, they are plotting to kill him. But when the opportunity presents itself, they decide instead to sell him to some traveling salesman who just happened to be passing by. So this teenage boy, he's only 17, he's forcibly taken to a foreign country hundreds of miles from his own home. It's a place where he knows no one and where he is sold on again as a household slave. Meanwhile, back at home, the stepbrothers have convinced their heartbroken father that this bratty younger brother was killed and eaten by a wild animal. And then they try to forget all about him. And they try to forget about what they've done to him and to their father. This teenage boy, Joseph, he was viciously betrayed by his brothers. These are grown men, members of his family who had a responsibility to protect him, to provide for him, to act on behalf of his well-being and flourishing. And if they couldn't bring themselves to do that, at the very least they had a responsibility not to actively seek to harm him that they did actively seek to harm him. This kind of trauma, when someone who's entrusted with our welfare betrays us, psychologists call it betrayal trauma. It's the trauma that occurs when we're betrayed by people we depend on for protection, for resources, for survival. It occurs when someone we're dependent on, this could be a family member, parent, partner, teacher, coach, a Sunday school teacher, or even an organization or institution in which we put our trust, when that person or organization violates our trust in a critical way. Betrayal trauma is especially damaging because It's difficult when you're in the midst of it to even fully acknowledge the abusive behavior because doing so can risk losing the support and care or protection that you need, whatever you are able to get from this person or institution. 
it risks making you more vulnerable. And it's not uncommon for children who've suffered a betrayal trauma to actually forget to not be able to recall the traumatic events they've suffered, even though they might have serious emotional and physical symptoms for years to come. This forgetting is a survival mechanism. When openly acknowledging the betrayal of trust would threaten the child's relationship with a caregiver, forgetting allows them to still remain in relationship with someone whose care they desperately need. And we adults, we sometimes experience something similar to this too, albeit in a very uh, much less vulnerable life stage than children. This happens sometimes when people and institutions we depend on betray our trust. And rather than calling those people or institutions to account, have you ever experienced this? We sometimes find ourselves downplaying the severity of the harm we've suffered or doubting our own perceptions of reality or of how severe the harm really was. And then we may find that if we report an injustice or an abuse, when we call for change and action, those who are in power, who we have trusted to lead an institution or an organization or trusted in relationship, instead demand us to remain silent or deny that there's been a wrong done or actively try to cover it up. Joseph was a survival, survivor of childhood betrayal trauma. He was betrayed. And Joseph was also incredibly resilient. So he arrives in this country a foreigner, a slave boy, and within a few years, he's transformed himself into CEO of his master's home and business. And by the time he's 30, he's second in command of all of Egypt. As a sign of his acceptance into Egyptian royalty, the pharaoh dresses him in royal robes, gives him a signet ring, gives him a, uh, an, an Egyptian name to replace his Israelite one, and arranges for him to marry a woman from an elite Egyptian family. It's hard to imagine a more successful rags-to-riches story. In 13 years' time, this Israelite slave has become the Egyptian prime minister. Joseph didn't forget the facts of his betrayal of what his brothers did. But when I read his story, I wonder if, like many of us who've suffered some kind of betrayal, he hadn't buried his grief and anger, pushed them down as he sought to survive and make a life for himself. Facing up to the depth of a betrayal and finding a way to be present to acknowledge, to own our own grief and anger takes a tremendous amount of time and energy. It is hard work. And to do it, it requires that we feel safe, secure, stable, that we can invest ourselves in that work and not be at risk while our attention is drawn there instead of to our own survival. For Joseph, the pain of this trauma stays well below the surface of his life until one day, a little more than two decades after he arrived in Egypt, Joseph's brothers appear out of nowhere in his royal offices. Desperate to buy food, they are starving, they need to survive this famine. And Joseph knows them immediately. He knows who they are, but they don't recognize him. 
For a while, Joseph keeps it that way. I imagine he probably needed some time, not only to process the flood of his own emotions and memories at seeing their faces, but to decide how he wanted to relate to these men who had so terribly abused him. And at first, Joseph is really, really angry. He interrogates his brothers harshly. He accuses them of being spies. He throws them in prison for three days and lets them stay there. And then he pulls them out and sends them home. But when he does send them home, he keeps one brother, Simeon, as a hostage. He says, I'll only release Simeon if you bring me back the youngest brother, Benjamin, the one who in Joseph's absence has become their father's favorite, his consolation in his old age, the treasure of the family. We Christians often have trouble with the anger of those who have survived betrayal. It's uncomfortable, it's difficult, it's painful. Whether that's our own anger at being betrayed or that of others. We wonder if Jesus said we should love our enemies and forgive those who sin against us, Surely there's no place for anger against those who've harmed us, right? But anger is like all our other human emotions. It isn't right or wrong in its own, in its own right. It just is. It's a signal telling us something important, that something in our lives has been threatened or violated. And if we don't acknowledge it, it goes underground or sideways into passive aggressiveness or controlling behavior or depression. It comes out one way or another. And for Joseph, this anger at his brothers seems to be the emotional jolt that brings this pain of long-ago trauma to the surface so he can deal with it. So I would not recommend throwing people into dungeons or taking hostages as a way of expressing your anger, but I think Joseph's willingness to be present to his anger at his brothers shows us an essential step in this process of coming to terms with betrayal. Anger is an appropriate response. It's a justified response when faced with the full reality of what has occurred in Joseph's life. And without taking into account, without counting up and, and taking full account of the harm that has been done and allowing himself to be fully present to his anger about that, there's no hope that Joseph's love for his brothers might be renewed. Unless he does this hard work, he will not be able to love his enemy brothers. Joseph is angry, but he doesn't exact revenge, or at least not to the extent that he could. He sends his brothers home. He keeps Simeon as a hostage, but he sends the rest home, and he sends them with bags full of grain, and he even hides their money that they brought to purchase food inside those bags, so they go home with both the food and the money. Some time passes, probably a couple of years. Simeon is still there in Egypt. The brothers are at home with their father, and their father can't bear to let them take Benjamin to Egypt. But then they run out of food again. And it's clear, if they don't get more food, they are all going to die. And so they return to Egypt, and this time they do bring Benjamin with them. They know it's a risk, a big risk. They're at the mercy of this angry man for their survival. But Joseph's anger seems to have done its work. 
He's had time and space to fully reckon with the harm that his brothers have done to him, to take account of his past, of what he suffered and what was lost due to their betrayal. And this hard work seems to have allowed space for Joseph's long-buried and forgotten love for his lost family to be reawakened and renewed, to come to life. And this time, Joseph receives his brothers in his own home as honored guests. When he sees his youngest brother, Benjamin, he's overtaken with grief. He has to rush from the room to hide his weeping. But even as his love for his family is reawakening, Joseph is very savvy and wise. And we wouldn't expect less from this resilient and ambitious man. He doesn't assume that his, that his brothers are changed men. He waits to see the evidence that their behavior has changed. So he arranges for a stolen silver cup to be just discovered in Benjamin's bag. And then he watches to see what will his older brothers do. Will they betray Benjamin, the youngest, to save their own skins as they once betrayed him? Or will they be willing to risk their lives to stand by Benjamin? Have they really changed? He wants to know. And this, too, is an important step in the process of healing from betrayal that we Christians often find uncomfortable. When we talk about forgiveness and loving our enemies, I think we often want to skip this step. It, it's, it's the step of assessing um, whether those who have done harm have actually changed their ways. It's uncomfortable to ask that those who were accustomed to trusting show us evidence that they are indeed behaving in trustworthy ways through their changed behavior. But when trust has been violated, it's an essential step to restoring some kind of relationship, to moving forward toward enemy love. And it's only after all of this, after Joseph has reckoned with the harm done, after he's grieved over what he has lost, after he has shrewdly tested his brothers to see if they really are trustworthy, that we come to the scene that we read earlier this morning. This is the scene where Joseph sends everyone else out of the room, and then with weeping, with joy and with grief, he dares to reveal his true identity to his brothers and take the risk of allowing his brothers back into his life. It's only after all of this that Joseph declares, you sold me into slavery in Egypt, but God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. It is not you who sent me here, but God who sent me here. Joseph is telling his brothers and telling us that even in the face of the worst of betrayals, the worst that we can suffer, God is able to do something good. Joseph's declaration of faith is not a denial of the harm done. He's not at all diminishing what happened. And it's not a blind leap into trusting those who betrayed him without any evidence that they've changed. Joseph's ability to see God's presence and his own capacity to see a way that he might participate in God's goodness in the midst of this betrayal, that's the fruit of this hard work he's done. 
in reckoning with his brother's betrayal, with what it means for him and his family. And God has intentions for salvation. They're very real, immediate, concrete intentions for salvation in feeding this starving family and making sure that they survive the famine. But God also has life-giving intentions for salvation that will come into human history in the whole sweep of the narrative of God's relationship with this chosen family that God is preserving and protecting through Joseph, the one who was betrayed, who did not receive protection and provision when he should have. Betrayal is never beautiful. It is not God's intention for us or for anyone. Even so, God is here, inviting us, even in the midst of our worst betrayals, to do the hard work that might make space for us to see where there are new possibilities of life and love and hope, new choices for family relationship patterns, new ways to move ahead right in the middle of our worst, most painful betrayals. This morning, I'm going to end this sermon with an invitation to silence. It's an invitation to listen for a few moments for the voice of God. I'm praying that you and that I will hear God's invitation to receive God's good intentions in our own lives, and that we will hear and receive God's invitation to do this hard work of cultivating space where enemy love might grow. Thank you for listening to the Community Mennonite Church podcast. Our theme music is a setting of John Wesley's text, Jesus, I Believe You're Near, composed by Matt Carlson. Jeremy Nafziger arranged it for strings. To learn more about our congregation or to plan a visit, please check out our website at cmcva.org.